Today, I'm talking with Heather Henninger about Kundalini Yoga, neuro-linguistic programming, and how the vagus nerve can affect anxiety and depression. Great conversation, learning a lot about things that I've heard about but don't know that much about. And that's one of my favorite things about this podcast is learning from direct sources. Hope you get something out of this conversation. We'll see you on the other side. But first, a message from our sponsor. Our healing journey can be difficult. It might feel lonely at times. That's why I love sound baths. When we can get together in a community, we intrinsically support and feel supported by others. And that combined energy can help us go deeper into our own healing journeys. And all you have to do is just lay there for one hour and listen to beautiful healing sounds. I'm a sound healing practitioner, and I hold sound baths on a regular basis in the greater Seattle area. You can find my next sound baths on my website at adamrealhealing.com. That's Adam, A-D-A-M, real, R-I-E-H-L, healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G.com. AdamRealHealing.com. Your healing is worth your time. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Heather Henninger. All right. Welcome back to our show. Uh, today I have on Heather Henninger. Uh, she is a uh, psychodynamic and somatic therapist uh, specializing in kundalini yoga and neuro-linguistic path, uh, programming. Uh, she's also the founder of Swan Love Holistics in Tulum. And uh, so Heather was introduced to me virtually by a guest that I've had on this show many times and a dear, dear close friend of mine, Lauren Acton. Um, and uh, I'm so honored that you've taken this time to share with us. Um, Kundalini and NLP are two things that I uh, have been on my peripheral of things that I want to dive deeper in and just haven't made it there yet. And so whenever Lauren reached out saying that you would be interested and this is what your background was, I'm like, that's, it, that's perfect. That's exactly what I need right now. So, uh, so first off, thank you for taking this time. I am really honored that you're, um, you're zooming in from Tulum, which is a place that I would love to be right now. <laughs> I, uh, I actually interviewed a woman yesterday in Costa Rica and now you're in Tulum. I'm like, I just need to be South. I'm just <laughs> being, I'm being pulled to the South somewhere. <laughs> Well, we're here for you when you want to come and visit. Oh, I'm so excited. I've, uh, I've actually, I don't think I've ever been to Tulum. I've been around Tulum and I think maybe you've passed through Tulum, but I don't think I've ever actually spent time there. And, uh, well, you have two reasons. You have me and you have Lauren in the area. Oh, so. beautiful. I will make that journey happen. Well, well thank uh, you for having me on. I, I really, um, likewise, really appreciate the platform to be able to share. So yeah. thank you. Well, your passions are, are so beautiful. I mean, I think everybody's passions are beautiful to themselves, but I love the passions that you have. Not only are you passionate about these beautiful healing modalities, but also the sharing of these healing modalities. And generally, we're, the reason we're so passionate about sharing something is because it's helped us in our own way in such a beautiful way. You know, that's why I'm such an advocate for yoga in general. Yoga saved my life in many different ways, from a health aspect, from a mental aspect, from a spiritual aspect. You know, and so like, if you ask me what to do, I'm going to tell you some yoga type shit, right? Cause I'm a yogi and you ask a monk what to do, they're going to tell you some monk type stuff. Cause they've been monking for years. Right. So learning different modalities of how these things can help our bodies, help our mentalities, help our spiritualities. That's, you know, the more tools we can have in our toolbox, I think the better off we'll be whenever, you know, kind of push comes to sub and we, we actually need to draw on these healing modalities. Um, so with Kundalini, where did, where did that kind of enter into your life? Uh, you know, was that, was that before NLP or was that kind of a coexisting uh, healing modality that happened at the same time? It was coexisting. Okay. Uh, I was, I, my first, my very, very first yoga class. Um, I was always, first of all, I was always curious about yoga, um, but I found my ego getting in the way. I was afraid I would look, you know, silly, not knowing the, you know, the postures and whatnot. So when I was in college, I, 
I just would walk by the classes and, you know, kind of peek and, and <laughs> be a voyeur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was never brave enough to actually go to a class. And I didn't understand uh, that there were different lineages of yoga. So my very first yoga class was in San Francisco in the year 2000. Hmm. Uh, and I kind of slowly like made my way into yoga and I became a very um, avid vinyasa practitioner. Um, but all the while I suffered from depression. Hmm. So my onset with depression was like age 19 or 20. I was a sophomore in college when my depression started. Okay. And um, I basically hit rock bottom at like in 2010 with a major breakup in my life that just sort of, the way I describe it is that it just sort of leveled me as a person. Um, mm. I felt like someone had amputated a limb and I just didn't feel like myself. And two years after the breakup, I was still grieving like heavily. I was crying all the time and I just couldn't get over it. My yoga practice was helping me. It was supporting me for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I would have been if I hadn't had yoga at all. Yeah. Um, but two years after the breakup, I, I knew having studied psychology as an undergraduate um, at university, I knew that that wasn't normal <laughs> <laughs> to not be able to overcome the grief after two years. And so at that point, I just... I had had a previous uh, neighbor. Her name was Erin Breach, and she's actually still a friend of mine. I just saw her a couple weeks ago. Hmm. And um, she, we shared a wall <laughs> ah. in an apartment in Los Angeles. And she had told me in my early 20s when I was still in my depression that Kundalini Yoga had saved her life. And so at my rock bottom in 2010, I just, I remembered her telling me that. And I knew her, who her teachers were, and I knew the studio where she went. And so I just sort of blindly followed her lead. And I decided to go to her, the same studio and study with the same teachers and just do something different because what I wasn't being exposed to in my vinyasa practice was pranayama or like no. the, the, the deeper layers of pranayama and the effects that it can have um in a good way right <laughs> and i wasn't being exposed at all to meditation so all i really knew all i really knew about kundalini yoga was that they meditated mm. <laughs> <laughs> all i really knew and i thought well if it changed you know if it saved aaron maybe it'll save me too right so the studio was called golden bridge um i'm sure some of your listeners will uh, be familiar with it uh, the founders are gurmukh and her husband guru shavid and yeah, I just, I started taking Kundalini yoga classes and I thought it was a very awkward, kind of silly, <laughs> didn't make a lot of sense, yep. like very, very esoteric practice. Mm -hmm. But right away, I mean, right away, like within the first month, I started feeling better emotionally. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand why, uh, because again, it can be very, you know, mysterious. Um, so I kept going. I kept going and about a year and a half after that, I decided to do yoga teacher training in, and train in Kundalini specifically. Yeah. And my, my particular training, it depends on you know who you train with. Some of the trainings are very um, dense and, and you train for like three weeks or four weeks. Uh, but mine was actually set up for working professionals. So mm. mine was spread out over eight months. Oh, wow. And it really allowed me time to, you know, have a, really potent weekend of, you know, really intense practices. 
and then integration. Mm. And then another intense weekend and then integration, you know, and about six months into my training, my depression left. Wow. Just, I mean, leading up to that, I will be forthcoming and saying that uh, it was hell. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was like that, that metaphor that they talk about in the lotus flower, hmm. you know, being in mud and that we have to like let the mud like the, the silt and the soot settle before you can actually see the beauty. And that was exactly what was happening to me. Like all of my shadow stuff was coming up, you know, lots of confusion, lots of frustration. Um, and, but I, you know, I, I do want to also say that during that time I had decided to be sober and just listen to the yogis. I was like, you know, this is what it says in the teachings. They say to be sober. They say to be vegetarian. And so I went all in. Okay. I, I quit smoking pot. I stopped drinking. I went vegetarian. Like I, I just dove in and I, and so it was also a lot of, um, you know, reframing my habits yeah. where I, used to reach for a little joint, you know, when I was sad, uh-huh. instead of doing that and getting high uh, and forgetting, you know, my sadness for three hours or whatever, uh, I would go and do a meditation instead. So mm-hmm. it's, um, that was also a huge part of it um, because I was reframing my, my habits and my patterns. Yeah. What do you think it was about Kundalini yoga specifically? That was something that helped draw you out of that depression. Cause I know it's very movement based, like gyrating, a lot of breath work, um, you know, very early morning practices for some of the, those really dedicated, uh, yogis in there. So what was it about the, uh, the practice itself that, that you feel helped you? Well, I have tried to answer that question <laughs> over the last 10 years. <laughs> I've, tried, I've tried to narrow it down to just one thing. And the, the fact of the matter is I do have a singular answer, but I will also say that Kundalini is such a comprehensive practice that I, I don't believe that it was any one thing. Hmm. You know, I also think it was timing and where I was in my life and my dedication. And, you know, it was like, the perfect storm in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the master of, of this practice, the, the way that he described dealing with or combating depression is he said that you have to approach the depression and begin to create more prana, more, more life force energy in the body mm-hmm. that is not uh, accumulated or created by adrenaline. Ah. So it's created instead by something else. Yeah. So in, in, in the practice of Kundalini yoga, if you're, if any of your listeners are completely unfamiliar to it, what we do a lot of is dynamic repetitive movements that are paired with the breath. Hmm. So you could be doing uh, a singular motion, repetitive back and forth motion for as long as, you know, what's average is three minutes, but sometimes seven minutes, sometimes 11 minutes, sometimes 22 minutes, you know? And, and that is what it does two things. One, it's creating more of that life force pranic energy Mm -hmm. in the body and you're starting to distribute it and then dispel a lot of repressed emotion that's in the body. Um, 
And it's also creating a moving meditation. Yeah. I've only, I've only done, um, you know, small increments of, of Kundalini practices with, uh, with Camo and Lauren, uh, separately. <clears throat> and, uh, the, when you bring up the, uh, the holding and repetitive movements, I think the very first thing I ever did, Camo had me do, um, the ego eradicator and mm-hmm. my arms were above my head for, it seemed like two hours, but they were probably like five minutes, you know, and it was one of the most intense thing. I was sweating and I was like, my ego was on fire. Like if Cam could have heard the things I was saying to him in my head and I'm like, Oh, calm down up there, buddy. What's going on? We're just arms above the head and breathing. There's no need to think like that. You know, there's yeah, so as, much, yeah, there's so much teacher, of that. As teachers, we are often the um, target of a lot of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. negative internal dialogue of, Oh my God, how much longer is this going to, you know, uh, yeah. Last? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, so with, uh, with the, the breath movement, so, um, just maybe to uh, elaborate a little bit more on what Kundalini yoga is for, for the listeners. Um, you know, the idea of what, so the, my basic understanding of Kundalini, I'll start there and then you can fill in my blanks, um, is that there is a, uh, an energy, uh, a, a generally known as like a snake or a serpent of some sort that lies at the base of our spine and, and our root chakra. And the, the idea is that through the energetic movements and the breath that we're raising that energy and that snake is uncoiling and moving up our spine into our, is it the crown chakra or the third eye, basically just moving up to that energy center and activating from there. And so through the, the breath work, through the movement work, the repetitive work, we're awakening and, and if mistake, correct me if I'm wrong, but generally Kundalini is uh, thought of as a the feminine energy of Shakti. Is that somewhere in the, the ballpark? Yeah, I mean, the, the word kundalini literally is another word for chi, hmm. which is, you know, we, we usually, most of us are, have heard that before mm-hmm. in relation to Chinese medicine. So the word kundalini just simply means that. It's the same, it's life force energy or chi energy. So the lineage of this yoga is literally carries the namesake of that life force energy. Mm. And um, this we all are accessing some of it otherwise we wouldn't be you know vital and awake and moving about things and creating stuff but uh what kundalini teaches is that we have a a reserve center or a storage house let's say of of extra access of this energy and it's stored just below our belly button Mm. and and the same is said in chinese medicine so you mentioned it starting at the root chakra. What, when I've reviewed and really studied some of the Kundalini books, mm-hmm. uh, the storage centers below the belly button, some people get, you know, really specific and they say, to, you know, about two fingers width down below the belly button. So around the second chakra. Okay. But when you start to activate it with your breath and movement or both together at the same time, what it does is it then travels downward to the root hmm. and then it climbs back up and, and it makes a spiral three and a half times up to the crown. And, hmm. and what happens when, when, when we activate it and it becomes, it goes from being dormant, mm-hmm. the majority of it being dormant to kinetic is that it awakens our purest potential, meaning we all came here with a mission. Hmm. Our soul came here with a mission. We came here with some idea before we were born of what we wanted to do in this lifetime, what our highest purpose was. 
but a lot of us get, you know, we forget we're born and then we forget and we get programmed and all of these things or, you know, a lot of times we don't believe uh, our light. We don't believe that it's even possible. How, how could we be mm. that impactful? How could we be that powerful? Yeah. And so what, what happens often when we practice Kundalini yoga is we start to strengthen our, our willpower. We start to believe in ourselves. We start to, you know, really begin to actualize our purest potential. And when that happens, we drop all of the habits that no longer serve us. We, you know, gracefully say goodbye to the relationships that are not serving us, mm. that are getting in the way of our highest purpose and their highest purpose. And we start to really become and step into who we're really meant to be. That's so beautiful. One of my, um, uh, my, my newest tattoo. So I'm a heavily tattooed human being. I love it. But, um, my newest tattoo that I got was about a year ago <clears throat> and it's the word remember tattooed on my, my four knuckles. And, um, and that was, I mean, what you've just said basically was the reasoning behind my getting this tattoo is that, you know, we're remembering and that's, that there's such a beautiful like thought behind the remembrance. Um, you know, I have this, this is probably not my theory, but this idea that it's, um, you know, the things that we learn that we're so passionate about, like say, take Kundalini yoga. When you first found it, like there was something that drew you to it. There was a passion. There was, you know, it could have been, uh, you know, for the anxiety and depression, but it also could have been, you were remembering something that once had such an impact in your life, maybe a previous life. And this is where that remembrance comes back. And through that remembrance, you're re remembering yourself, you're reestablishing that member of yourself, you know, and so that whole concept to me is so beautiful that, you know, that that excitement that we have that past life person that knew that we were strong enough to handle the shit that we're putting ourselves through right now, because the the capital I, I am that that planned this life for you knew that you were strong enough, knew that you could do this and knew that this was something that you wanted to challenge yourself with. So again, that that's that remembrance is that remembering the tools that, that, that capital I person that, that set up this life for you, knowing that you could do this was able to, to, to put these things into your path to, and, and add the importance to it so that you could remember and that you could find this path and that you could be that human being that that capital I human knew that you could be. And that for me is like, every time I get into the shit, right, I had a, you know, separated from the mother of my children, I didn't see my kids for a long time, I was an alcoholic, I was all these things, right. And the concept of that I that somebody that me that that previous me knew that I was going to go through this, but knew that I would find my way out, and that I would learn lessons from that. That's what keeps me going is that I knew that I was strong enough, even if I don't think I'm strong enough. Now that capital I me knew that I was strong enough at this point in time. And that's, that's kind of reassuring to me. And yeah, it's kind of like a slap in the face for some, you know, it kind of might seem like, well, why, why would I put myself through this shit? Cause you had some lessons to learn that your higher self knew that you need to learn. Right. You had some lessons to learn or, or we have karmic, you know, contracts to unwind and, right. and repair and heal. And uh, yeah, we're totally on the same page. I know there's maybe some people out there that don't believe in reincarnation, but I do. And uh, I didn't, I grew up um, pretty devoutly Lutheran, but in my older years in college and whatnot, I started studying other religions and philosophies like yoga and, and now do believe very much in reincarnation. I just recently um, 
repurchased autobiography of a yogi mm, great book. and I'm reading it again. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of the rishis and the sages and Paramhansa Yogananda, they, they remember their past lives. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, I was just listening to the Dalai Lama the other day and there is something that, that, that he was talking about that blew my mind. I had never heard of this before, and it's called ring cell beads. So apparently, uh, it's a tradition when the lamas pass away that their bodies are cremated. And after the cremation, the, the other monks and Rinpoches, they sift through the ashes, and they find what's called a ring cell. And there are these beads that are uh, theoretically formed in the heart after your body's cremated. So it's all the purities of your body and your, your consciousness, your chi, your prana, made into a bead after your, you know, after your body's burned. And so the, the theory is that the monks can pull these beads out and look at the beads and analyze how depth, the depth of the consciousness of that, that llama. Wow. Right. I, you know, and this is, I just like literally yesterday heard this and I'm like, I've, I did some research yesterday and anything that I found was like ring cell worms or ring cells, uh, you know, some kind of disease for ring cell. I couldn't find anything about the ring cell beads themselves. But man, I, I'm, I'm going to dig deeper into that. But that whole concept to me is mind blowing that there is this practice of cremating the bodies and being able to find this stone. And those stones are kept in a very secret place. I think it's in the Dalai Lama, they're with the current Dalai Lama, all the stones from the previous lamas that have passed away that have this ring cell stone and they can tell the depth of the consciousness that they reached. Wow. Whoa. Isn't that amazing that something like, like that can be measured? Something that we right now think is intangible. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Wow. I, it blew my mind. I'm just like, I, I got to tell everybody that I can tell about that. And you seem like somebody that you would be like, I think you would, you would, you would jump on um, with that idea. Whereas some people are like, yeah, Adam, you're full of shit. That's great. Good for you. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask you, <laughs> I was going to ask you if you've ever found something in one of your current practices, like a modality that you know and love and is in your, you know, current you know, regular practice, if you then maybe heard intellectually from somebody else what it stems from, but it's like you were just intuitively doing it and you're like, huh, I must have taken that from a past life. Has that ever happened to you before? Yes, actually, the, the most recent um, idea for that would be, um, so I, I'm an energy healer outside of this podcast. I do a lot of Reiki and uh, sound healing. And, uh, and I work with uh, other mediums and different people in the metaphysical realm to help strengthen my ideas and the, the, the tools that I've been gifted with and just to d develop other things. And, um, and one day, it was probably about six months ago, eight months ago, um, I started whistling very randomly in my meditations. And it just... I, I didn't even realize I was doing it, right? I, I, I have like a morning meditation about 45 minutes or so, and then I do about four or five 10-minute meditations throughout the day. And it was through those those daily meditations, those, those smaller chunked ones, that I noticed myself starting to whistle. And at first, it was kind of nonsensical. It, was, it, it didn't really have a pattern to it. And then it started to like form a pattern. And I was seeing in my mind, as I up-whistled, I could feel my energies kind of upregulate. And as I down-whistled, it wasn't bringing energies down. It was more leveling out. And, uh, and it just, you know, I just thought it was kind of fun, but I, and I 
but I was subconsciously doing it. I wasn't activating it myself. And so I started talking to my, um, my medium that I work with. And she basically told me that that's one of my, that's one of my uh, spirit guides coming through to me, giving me uh, medicine that I can utilize for myself and for the clients that I work with. And so now I've been able to integrate those whistles and this kind of whistling technique into my practice with my guests, with my clients and have had just really, really cool results with and I have no idea where it comes from. I love whistling. I love music. I love song. I love all that stuff. But I've never been just like a jolly whistler. I'm just going to walk around and whistle like whistle I work. But now when I meditate and when I work with clients, I'm a whistling machine. And it just, it's something about it that feels great. Wow. Well, you know, we, we do incorporate whistling in some of our longer meditations uh, in Kundalini Yoga. All right. That's really interesting that you say that. That's so cool. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that's, I think, you know, that's, and those are those things where is if that would have happened to me before, like, so I've been meditating for roughly 10 years. I started my, my spiritual path when I was about 30 and, um, and if this would have happened even like two years ago, I probably would have just dismissed it as like, yeah, what the hell ever. But, you know, right place, right time, right mindset, you know, and, and, and you know, in, introduction into my more recent meditations, I've been sitting with different types of plant medicines like Hoppe and Sananga, non-psychoactive plant medicines. These are more of like clearing medicines, grounding medicines. Uh, Sananga is something we put in our eyes to remove the, the falseness of the, what we see so we can see perfectly clear and activate our third eye. You know, and, and hoppe is a tobacco snuff. You uh, put up your nose to kind of ground you and put you back into place. And so introducing those medicines into my, in my meditation practices whenever, you know, whenever I feel called to them, I think that was helping me clear the way of my falseness of the story. And I don't, I ne man, I, I probably still don't realize the full extent of the bullshit I've been telling myself. But every single day, it seems like I, un I, I turn another page and like, oh, my God, I've been telling myself that for how many years? I'm 42 now. So probably at least 30 years I've been telling myself that I'm not enough, that I'm not a, a good human being, that I'm always being watched. And I need to, you know, I need to act a certain way because I'm being watched, not because I feel like I need to uh, or want to act that way. You know, like there's this omnipotent being that's just watching Adam and keeping tabs and be like, oh shit, he said the curse word again. That's another tally on the negative side, you know? And it's, so it's, it's beautiful to finally get to a point to where these stories I can laugh at them. You know, they still, they still impact me. I'm still living them. I'm just because I realize them doesn't mean they're done, but at least now I can laugh at it and be like, Oh dude, the guy that just cut you off, he doesn't mean anything bad to you. He's just in a hurry to do whatever the hell he needs to do. Take it, take a step back and take a breath at him. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with, uh, so with Kundalini yoga, um, what was the, uh, so, okay. So when did you desire or find out that you wanted to be a teacher? Cause I know that's a big step for a lot of people is to take that next step into holding space and leading a class and being the, the giver of the knowledge, the presenter of that knowledge. Yeah. And it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had actually come down to Tulum, uh, in 2012, uh, for, winter vacation. I have a former life in the music industry as an executive in the music business. And mm. the week between Christmas and New Year's is always just everything shut down, which is awesome because it's like extra vacation. So I had come down here to where I now live <laughs> <laughs> for vacation and LA Yoga Magazine at that time, every year in their December issue, they used to put all the upcoming teacher trainings, mm. um, they used to print it in their December issue so that people could plan to do a training the, the coming year. 
And so I brought the magazine down and I was like, this is my year, you know, for like decades, people had been asking me like, when are you going to be a yoga teacher? Like you'd be a great yoga teacher. And I remember my response always being like, when it's the right time. There you go. And I'll, and I'll know when it's the right time. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, I've been doing Kundalini for like practicing for like a year and a half. I wasn't yet convinced though, that I was going to become a Kundalini yoga teacher. Okay. So I, so I came down to Tulum with this December issue of LA yoga magazine and I was kind of meditating on it. And I had no idea that my primary teacher in Kundalini yoga, her name was Tej Kar Khalsa. Uh, I had no idea that her and her ex-partner, ex-husband, um, had planned to do a training at the top of the year that was set up for business professionals where it was one month, one weekend a month for eight months. And I saw it in the, in the magazine, but I was down here in Tulum and th- through like the first week of January. So I missed the first weekend hmm. the training. So when I got back to LA, I emailed their assistant and I remember very clearly, it was like, a weekday night and it was like 11 p.m. and I was sitting in my you know dining room table on my computer and I emailed her let the, the you know I saw that you guys have this training and I, I noticed you know I missed the first weekend but do you plan on doing any other ones this year and she wrote me back like five minutes later it was yeah. like we were having this like active email exchange yeah. and she said it's okay that you missed the first weekend you should just join us and then I started to backpedal. <laughs> Hold on. And I, wrote her back, and I wrote her back and I was like, well, I don't really have the money. You know, I, I need to save right now. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm prioritizing like getting out of debt and blah, blah, blah. Um, so just let me know if you're going to do it later this year. And she wrote back, how much can you pay? Mm-hmm. And I wrote back, I, you know, I did some quick numbers and I responded back to her with a number and I said, but I can't even pay that all at once. I would have to pay it like in increments. And she wrote back, great, we'll see you next weekend. <laughs> and I remember sitting at my table and this, I got, it was literally a good wash of energy, like just over me. And I burst into tears. Mm. And I remember sitting at my table just being like, all right, this is it. Like the universe, just like you kind of danced around with it. And the universe was like, let's go. Uh-huh. We're doing this shit. <laughs> you know? so, um, so yeah, so I was there in fe- February, whenever the next training was. And um, yeah, my life has never been the same. Mm. And so did, uh, and you, you said uh, neuro-linguistic programming kind of came in around the same time or was that? Um... No, um, no, that was like, let's see. I think it was right before the pandemic. Mm, okay. 2019 or 2020 is when I um, trained in it. Okay. No, 2019. 2019. Yeah, it was before the pandemic. Yeah. Right. And so you'd already been doing Kundalini and, and certified in your Kundalini and started to practice that. And were, yeah. so did that drew, draw you to NLP? Was something in Kundalini that, that drew you to that neuro linguistic programming or was it something that was completely separate? Well, there was actually something in between okay. um, that, was the, that sort of bridged the gap for me. So, So I had been teaching in LA for several years before moving to Tulum in 2017. Um, But also before I moved to Tulum, I studied yoga therapy Mm. at Loyola Marymount University. 
Uh, and the education at Loyola is amazing. I can't say enough great things about the program. And it's an accredited program for the International Association of Yoga Therapists, which is a body, uh, an organization who, who's doing a lot to try to standardize the title of yoga therapy okay, um, or yoga therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did two years of the program because then I relocated and moved. So I don't, I'm not strictly technically, uh, I, IAYT certified yoga therapist, but, um, I did do two years All right. at, at Loyola and it's, but it's very, you know, that program specifically is very much set up to train yoga teachers to become yoga therapists in a clinical setting so that you could go and work, you know, in tandem with an oncologist or a woman's reproductive specialist or something and work with their medical, you know, Western medical doctor, um, as a team, you know, with, and treat the person as a, the yoga therapist treats the person as a whole being and not just looking at the problem. And given that I had a background in psychology, uh, and my undergraduate studies, it's like, I just sort of took this 20 year deviation for fun in the music industry. (laughs) (laughs) And then I like found myself coming back full circle to a spiritual way of approaching mental health. Yeah. So Um, I wasn't interested in working in a clinical setting and I also have never really been that inclined to, uh, while I appreciate, especially as I'm someone who has scoliosis, while I appreciate the other lineages of yoga, like Iyengar and stuff who, who very much put a, a, an emphasis on, you know, structural alignment and things like that. It just wasn't my, it didn't light me up, Mm -hmm. You know, and also I think because I suffered from depression, naturally, I wanted to, like you were saying at the top of the, of the podcast, um, most of the time, those of us that are teachers uh, in some capacity, we teach what we've learned. We teach modalities that have helped us overcome our struggles. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I wasn't, I, I wanted to go in that direction in mental health and it's a beautiful Kundalini yoga is a really beautiful practice in that it is a very prescriptive yoga. So there's a protocol, a Kriya, a meditation of pranayama for literally anything and everything you could think of Mm. mentally, physically, emotionally, or energetically. Like there's, there's something for you. Yeah. Um, but because I didn't want to work in a clinical setting, I didn't know how I wanted to apply the yoga therapy. So when I first arrived in Tulum, I was kind of like maybe trying to teach some Hatha classes, even though I didn't really want to. Mm -hmm. A lot of the hotels here didn't want to let me teach Kundalini yoga because they said, well, people don't know what that is. Gotcha. Yep. And I said, well, they're never going to know if you don't offer the class. Somebody's got to bring it into them. Yeah. And so I had to be patient and I found a couple of hotels that allowed me to do that. And, and it just felt like NLP was that extra like training that I needed in order to be able to work with people more one-on-one and not just teach them Kundalini yoga in a private setting, but to actually have like a therapy practice Hmm. Uh, and NLP and timeline therapy allows for me to do exactly that. 
Nice. Yeah, I love uh, I, I love when we can find the ways that uh, we can layer in our modalities that make sense to us. Um, you know, and that's I think those those are the part of those actualization moments that we have throughout life, where we find the way that all the the weird passions that we have, the weird interests that we have, that might seem weird to others but seem normal to us but we find the way that those things work together to, to help us present something beautiful to humanity in some kind of way whether it's you know helping them in individual basis is you know through their anxiety depression or it's some kind of creative way artistic way but you know there is that that weird puzzle that is you that is the the individual human being that is made up of all these weird passions and, and cool ass little like intricate stuff that nobody might have any interest but you and we find the way that all those work together and then boom here's this beautiful gift for humanity right there for you well, absolutely and i find so many parallels to what kundalini teaches with what nlp teaches because largely both of them are a lot about the unconscious mind. Hmm. So NLP is something I, you know, I've, I've, I've no minimum, minimum, minimum amount of. Um, so what, you know, can you give us like a elevator pitch of what NLP is or, you know, something that can be something like tangible or chewable for us? Sure. Yeah. It's rooted in Jungian psychology. So Carl Jung, mm-hmm. right. Who was a, you know, student of Freud and then they had a rift and (laughs) (laughs) uh, Jung went in his direction and, you know, made an entire career out of studying his own unconscious mind. Right. That's how he brought us the archetypes and, uh, you know, the ideas of what archetypes are. And, you know, actually, I, I, you know, I think most of us, at least, you know, maybe in the, from the born between the sixties and eighties, know more about Freud originally, because that's kind of what was taught. That's the name we hear a lot. But as I've gotten older and as I've gotten out of traditional psychology and not that I'm studying it at all, but I just, you know, love to noodle around with stuff like that. I've gotten more into Jungian and I find more, um, more applications for what Jung was doing with archetypes, especially in the metaphysical world than what, you know, Freud was talking about more of like, you know, the id and the ego and how we all have this weird passion about our moms and all this stuff, you know, which I'm not discounting. I don't know enough about it to discount it, but you know, I just, I'm drawn more to that Jungian kind of idea of, of, of uh, psychology. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, it's largely based in Jungian psychology and, and the Gestalt therapists, uh, Milton Erickson, um, Virginia Satia, people like this. Hmm. Uh, but it's based on this idea that whatever stories we're telling ourselves becomes our reality, hmm. meaning we have filters based on our childhood, based on the belief systems that we grew up with inside of our families or in our culture and our countries and our language, based on our past experiences, all of these create filters. And so Kundalini says something similar, only they just use a different name. They call them lenses. Mm, And so when we're able to understand that we've selected bits of information out of our external environment that has then become our story and our truth and our perception of what happened. When we clean up our filters and recognize that there were other pieces of information that we just didn't choose to select Mm. that were also there, it's a way of um, cleaning up our filters. So, So largely what as a practitioner, what we're trained to do as NLP pracs are 
listen to the words that people are using, listen to the statements, like the limiting statements mm. that people are saying, and ask specific questions that then open up a person's, you know, um, we're not, we're never suggesting, uh, we're never giving people advice. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just asking these kind of prodding, poking questions yeah. to get people to understand that that's not the whole picture. Mm. And yeah. when that happens, there's a softening um, that often occurs. There's a release of resentment or, you know, responsibility towards other, or, or, or people are taking responsibility where before they were putting it on somebody else. Right. You know? Yeah. That's a, that's a big one. Um, there's two things that come up to me with that is, uh, one, like, I love, so the, what you just described to me was, uh, was trained to me, uh, in a, a completely different way and probably not, not very similar, but there's uh, there's that questioning side of it. And it was the Socratic method of, of, uh, talking with people. Right. And, and it's, it's basically, it's like, it's understanding that everybody has an ego, right. And no matter where our ego is, our ego is the ability to be flared is there. And so when we ask questions as the person on the other side, asking questions to the person that's trying to receive help, when we ask the right questions in a probing way, in a very creative way, we can lead the individual to the answer that we might see for them. But again, it's not our answer to give. We got to lead them to that question or that answer. And when you're led to it and you're not just sitting across from the, you know, somebody telling you, this is what you should do. This is how you should act. This is why you should be this way. When we're able to find our own way to it, then our ego embraces that a little bit more as, oh, I figured it out. I've, I, I've got something I can work with now. And so then that ego kind of softens and then there's more probing that can happen. But, uh, you know, and I learned that in, in restaurant management and, uh, as a young manager, 24 years old, managing people that were sometimes twice my age, you know, I can't really go up to somebody and be like, Hey, this is what you should do. Uh, so my boss at the time taught me that Socratic method and it was such a beautiful way to approach people and to just like disarm them and say, Hey, we're all here together. This is just advice that I'm trying to seek myself by asking these questions. And then they find their way to their answer. Right. And it's empowering. Yeah. Instead of feeling like there's this, you know, diplomacy or, or this, you know, authoritative figure, you mm -hmm. know, telling you what to do. You know, you get to probe, like you're saying, probe and find the questions for yourself. Um, inside NLP, there's a whole list of questions called the meta model mm, or okay. meta model questioning. I think it was created by Milton Erickson. Um, they're quite fascinating. It's, yeah. it's questions like, okay, well, when did you decide that? Mm. Uh, or things like, you know, if someone were to say something like, well, he's always yelling at me. Uh, speaking in absolutes. Uh-huh, absolutes. And so you would say, well, have you ever yelled at anybody before that you loved? Hmm. You know, things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Where you're like, you know, oh, yes, I have. Okay, and what, why were you yelling? You know? Hmm. Because I was having a bad day. Okay, well, is it possible that, he, you know, that person was also having a bad day? Right. Perspective. Oh, that's beautiful. The other thing that comes up for me when uh, when you're talking about this is the idea of you know we're selecting the the versions of our stories to uh, to pay attention to, and uh, and I know for me that was uh, when I when I finally grasped that concept, I, I was kind of pissed. 
you know, and I was kind of upset, you know, I'm like, no, I wouldn't choose this for myself. Like, there's no way I would choose to think this way. I would choose to act in this manner. I would choose to kick my feet and stop my legs whenever I didn't get my way. And I'm a 30 some odd year old man at that time. Right. I don't choose that. But at the same time, like once, once I got the clarity of understanding what you're talking about, like I did understand that I, that I choose that. And I am living the story that I'm, that I'm choosing to live. So how do so as an NLP uh, practitioner, how do you how do you approach that to where we can soften um, that approach and, and, and it doesn't seem so like ah, you've done this to yourself, you know, kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I first became a practitioner, I they're very uh, they're very absolute in your training okay. about like every you create everything in your life. And my mind went to, well, what if you were abused? Right. Did you choose that? Right. Like, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. Or, you know, if you were raped or if you were, you know, a refugee Mm -hmm. or, you know, um, because if you ask anybody (laughs) who's been a refugee or, you know, a, a rape survivor or something like that, I'm I'm sure they would tell you that they didn't choose that. Right. If they had the choice, yes or no, would they have chosen that? Um, and 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 I've come to terms with with it this way. Mm, okay. Much like you, again, much like you started off the the podcast by saying, you know, we sometimes we, we oftentimes those of us who are teachers or healers or whatnot, um, we teach what what we do because it's helped us overcome something. Mm -hmm. Well, it's that it's, it's how has what you've been through, how can you use what you've been through to help others? Right. You know? Um, And I think it also goes back to the way that I've resolved the idea of it is there's also things beyond our understanding. It could be karmic. Right. You know, maybe the only reason why somebody was a refugee is because they were a dictator in a past life. Right, right. Exactly. I, I don't know. You know, there's there's still lots of I don't knows. Yep. And I'm very delicate with, you know, when those situations come up with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't say to a refugee, well, why did you choose this? Because <laughs> 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 yeah. um, that can be very confronting and, and that would I would lose likely lose rapport with my client. So right. um Yeah. And you know, kind of goes back to our talk earlier where we talked about, you know, that 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 being that when we reincarnate, we choose this life and the the, the trials, tribulations and things like that. You know, and it's 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 this higher sense of the, the I, the capital I me, right? This this I knew that okay, so I've I've like you said, so maybe I was a tyrant in a previous life. And now to, to understand the other side of being a tyrant, being on the receiving end of tyrancy, this is what that feels like. Right. And because one of the ideas with reincarnation is we have to experience every single aspect of life. 
like the masculine, the feminine, the non-binary, the molested, the molester, the king, the queen, like everything has to happen for us to fully understand the, the impact of humanity, of the human life, the human existence. And again, that's a hard thing to swallow because we're living a human existence. We're not planning the human existence, right? And that kind of goes to the idea of free will. You know, if we have free will, then how am I following a plan that somebody else put in place? Well, because the free will came from the capital I. That person designed what that free will looked like because they lived the previous free will and now they know what they need to continue to work on. So the freedom of that choice that they're making is impacting the destiny of the human that's going to be living the free will. So we have the free will as the, the creator of this life and then we're living the destiny of that free will. You know, so there's, again, there's that, there's that trust and there that there's that knowing that like this life might be really hard. It might be really good, but there's, there's aspects that we need to take away from this for us to fulfill our humanity and to continue on in this journey of life. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I think it's ancestral. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've heard multiple times, especially inside the Kundalini tradition of when you do your work and when you clean up your stuff, <laughs> And you're willing to, you know, have the courage to, to look under the rug and, and, you know, look at your shadow stuff and, and really actually heal it and sit with it and hold it and give it space to be there and move through it instead of around it. Um, you know, that it takes a lot of courage and you're affecting seven generations in the past mm. and you're setting up seven generations for the future. And I've seen that in my own practice. Wow. I've witnessed that in my own practice with, especially with my mother. Yeah. That's, you and know, I, I will be honest with, you know, your, you and your listeners that, um, the deeper I dove into my work, the better my relationship with my mom got, even though she's never been to therapy, hmm. She's never done any sort of like formal healing or anything like that. She's attended my yoga classes yeah. and, and she's become a lot more. I mean, I have just by living my life as example, I've influenced her, you know, and I would go so far as, I mean, she's told me, so it's not like I'm making it up that I've, I've inspired her. Mm. But she's never done the work, so to speak, right. you know, but our relationship has blossomed because of it. And it was very combative mm. in my teenage years and my 20s and even my mid 30s, you know, and and now we're great. Yeah, that, you know, that that message was given to me um, when I first started my healing journey that I'm doing the work that my my past ancestors either didn't know they had to do work, they didn't know they were traumatized, or they didn't have the time, the effort, the money, the stability to do that work. And right. and that, when, when she told me that, that, that took me back. And I'm like, oh, damn, I didn't. And, you know, to what you're talking about, like my dad's passed away. So, and he would probably be the biggest person that I would, that I, he is the biggest person I still think about now as to where I'm at, to where he was when I, when he passed away. Um, you know, I've changed drastically. You know, there's, there's, ideas in life that I now embrace that I never would have before. And I, I always question about whether he would really embrace me as the person that I am now. Um, I've had meditations that tell me that, yes, my dad loves the shit out of me and he's really proud of me for doing this work. And, you know, and that just, it reaffirms that idea of like, man, you know, my, my, my dad who's passed away is, is sending me messages. My brothers who are 
not atheists, but you know, as a family, we never gave any, any really credibility to God or higher powers, things like that. It's just shit we didn't talk about. But now that I'm in this path of yoga and this, this metaphysical path, and I'm trying to heal myself, you know, my brothers have reached out and they're, they're asking these probing questions that, that I'm not, I'm not enticing them to ask. They're just, they're seeing whatever I'm putting out there, listening to my podcast, seeing what I'm putting out on Instagram or whatever like that and saying, Hey, what did you mean by that? Because that kind of like struck a chord with me. I'm like, great, cool. Let's talk about that. Right. We don't all, you know, we'll, we'll find our healing journey when we're ready and it's going to be unique to the individual. And if I can be a proxy to somebody's healing journey, just by answering questions or living that, uh, you know, that example that I feel is best representative of me, then man, that's, that's, that's the work right there. Right. That's part of that work. Right. We're just passing it along the knowledge as we find it. Yeah. Yeah. We're channels. Yeah. So with, uh, with NLP and in Kundalini, uh, now that I know a little bit more about NLP, do you use that kind of idea in the Kundalini, um, meditations that you design and that you, that you present like utilizing some of that, um, some of the way that you talk to, um, you know, present the information or, or talk to your clients, you know, is that something that you're, you're mixing in there now? So there's actually two answers to that question. The first one is in my classes, I don't integrate NLP okay. unless it would be in my Dharma talk. Sometimes I do actually talk about the filters and the unconscious mind and da, 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 and my Dharma talks. But when we teach Kundalini yoga, most of us who are trained certified Kundalini yoga teachers out there, we fell under or we fall under the lineage of uh, Yogi Bhajan. Okay. And we follow the sequences and meditations and pranayamas as he taught them. Mm, okay. And, you know, there's, we have creative um, license, let's say, over uh, the combinations of the kriyas and the meditations and the music that we play and things like that. So, of course, you're going to come across some um, differences when you come when you go to one teacher versus the next however there is absolutely um no changes to be made in the kriyas or meditations themselves gotcha okay um the second part of that is when i'm in my one-on-one sessions with my clients um i'm kind of parceling out or, or in segmenting out like a particular pranayama or, or some, something from the Kundalini lineage, um, inside of the, the therapy session. Hmm. So it's not always, sometimes it is a full entire Kundalini session with a, with a client, but usually it's just a little, you know, segmentation of Kundalini yoga that is included in the therapy session. And it's mostly NLP and timeline and or timeline therapy when I'm doing my one-on-one work with people. Okay. But like I said, there's so many parallels, like, and I kind of have a penchant for recognize, not just in these two modalities, but just with academic information in general, I have a penchant for sort of going, Oh, well that's like this. And, you know, Kabbalah says it like this and mm. blah, blah, but it's the same thing. Like we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Hell yeah. Well, that's great that you can draw those conclusions, you know, because I mean, I think that's, that is a lot of it. You know, a lot of these, let's say religions, dogmas, things like that, they're all, we're, you know, they're all saying this, the same thing, similar thing, just presented with different vocabulary, different, you know, metaphors, different ideas. 
but a lot of this is, it really is the same, you know? So I, I applaud you for being able to find those, those lines, especially sometimes dotted, crooked, non, you know, nonlinear lines of like, like the naughties, right? If you look at a naughty chart, you know, it looks like a kid took a, a picture of a guy meditating and just scribbled all over it and was like, all right, there you go. I'm like, okay, those are naughty lines. Oh, Jesus Christ. Like that's, that's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, the fact of the matter is truth is truth is truth is truth, right? Mm. It's just like the details that we get caught up. That's where the dogma comes in, right? right? And okay. then that's what creates division is the dogma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with uh, So uh, with uh, the vagus nerve and how this kind of enters into your passions, yeah. um, so first off, can you, can you give a little explanation of what the vagus nerve is or like, you know, workings of? Yeah, and that actually just reminded me that that is probably repairing my vagal nerve tone is probably a huge reason why I was able to also heal myself from depression. Mm. My nervous system was whacked out. Yeah. Um, I've never heard the term vagal nerve tone before. I'm I'm really excited to hear you talk about that a little bit Yeah, just like you tone your muscles, you can tone your vagal nerve. Ah. So the primary way to do that is something called um, heart rate variability. Okay. So when we, you know, place our hand on our chest or we put our fingers on our wrist and we feel our pulse, it feels pretty regular, right? Right. But, but machines inside of hospitals, when you're actually regulating the heart or measuring the heart, there are these minute differences. When you inhale, your heart rate speeds up a little bit. Okay. And when you exhale, it slows down a little bit. So those variations is... The, the measurement between those variations of the inhale and exhale and the heart rate itself is called heart rate variability. And mm. the better heart rate variability that you have, the better vagal nerve tone that you have. Mm. They, they found a correlation. And your vagus nerve, just for those who don't know what it is, it's a cranial nerve. Uh, I believe it's the 10th cranial nerve in the body. It starts at your medulla oblongata and your brainstem. And in Latin, the word vagus, it's spelled V-A-G-U-S, not like Las Vegas. Like Las Vegas, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it means wandering or vagabond. Oh. And it's called, it's called that because it's the longest nerve in your body, and it touches every major organ in your body. Wow. I've, uh, you know, vagal vagabond makes complete sense. I've never put that together, and that's, I love yeah. that. That's beautiful. Yeah, so your sciatic nerve is your largest nerve in the body, but your vagus nerve is your longest nerve in the body. And so because it touches every single major organ in your body, and it's one of the nerves, and not all of your nerves do this, not all of your nerves have a two-way communication. Mm. Some of your nerves just have a one-way communication. But the vagus nerve has two ways. So it's both sending messages from your brain to your organs or to your body and receiving messages from your body back to the brain. Mm, okay. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the majority is messages from the body back to the brain. Like gut information going back up or like, you know, that kind of how the, how the body's yeah, From your stomach, from your heart, from your mm. liver, from literally every organ. Wow. And it is 
the major nerve that is responsible for your stress response. And so when you, so when a person experiences trauma in their life, you can have a short circuit, basically, mm. uh, a miswiring of that two-way communication. And you can get trapped in a cycle of sympathetic stress response, which is your fight or flight. Okay. The problem in today's modern society is that many of us are stuck in fight or flight simply by the way that we live. Right. Or, you know, if you live in a major city and you are in traffic, you know, and you're working eight hours a day and you've got kids at home and all the things like it's, you're just in stress response. And so there's something that happens specifically when you're in trauma. So let's, there's something called polyvagal theory. Are mm. you familiar with it? Yes, slightly. Actually, I just made a note to bring that up, but yeah, please hit me. Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. So um, the best book that I can recommend to anybody mm -hmm. uh, is called The Body Keeps the Score. <sighs> Such a good book. Yeah. Yeah. By Bessel van der Kolk. And then somebody who's, you know, Bessel's still alive and he lectures and he's been on a number of podcasts with, you know, Krista Tippett and On Being and all, you know, so I highly recommend other people go out and read or listen to, you know, his work. But another modern day teacher that's also taken a lot of Bessel's work and reinterpreted it and is teaching it is Mastin Kip. Mm, okay. Yeah. Uh, and so what Mastin, I've learned a lot from him about fight or flight and then rest and digest. But what a lot of us don't realize is that there's almost like a third response that happens. Um, and it was, so polyvagal theory was created. Oh shoot, I'm forgetting who it was, the name of the guy who created the theory. Yeah, I'm not remembering the name of the person, but the, the, the theory itself. Um... Yeah, anyway, the theory itself is this. Prior to this theory coming onto the scene, Everybody thought that our stress response was like an on and off switch. Hmm. You're either in sympathetic or you're in, you know, parasympathetic. You're either in, you know, re uh, fight or flight or you're in rest and digest. Everything's cool. It doesn't actually happen that way. So you first, we, when we're experience, when we experience a stressful event, let's say a lot, the example that I often give is like, you're, you find yourself, unfortunately, in a burning building. Okay. And you're on the like, seventh, seventh floor, you know, the first thing you're going to do is fight or flight. You're going to like look for a way out. You're going to look for, you know, a fire escape. You're going to open the hallway door and see if there's flames and right. You're going to mm -hmm. try to get out of there. Right. Um, but if you can't, and then, and then you're going to scream for help. You know, if you can't get out yourself, you're going to scream for help. You're going to look for something outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't happen and you find yourself engulfed in flames, what happens is something called dorsal vagal shutdown. Uh. And so you don't want to be conscious if the inevitable in this situation is going to happen. So what happens is you get a huge rush of hormones and everything that gives an override to the parasympathetic okay. and you skip the rest and digest and you go straight into disassociation. Oh, interesting. So that you won't remember. Right. So your conscious mind 
won't remember. And this is why in, tra in trauma patients or people who have experienced war hmm. or, you know, something like that, they won't remember. They'll have repressed memories that maybe come out, you know, 20, 30 years from now or in a dream in their unconscious mind. Right. Right. Um, and so that is dorsal vagal shutdown. But what's happening, and I bring this up because what's happening in modern day life Mm -hmm. is that we get that overwhelm, 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 too much stress, too much, too much, too much. And then our modern day experience of dorsal vagal shutdown is I'm now going to lay on the couch for six hours and binge watch Netflix. Wow. Yeah. I can't, I can't do anymore. Right. It's, it's literally disassociation. Wow. You know? Yeah. Until, until the system can repair itself back to a state where, okay, I can engage again mm -hmm. with, with my people. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's um, interesting you say that because I, I, man, I think I experience that every night around nine o'clock. I used to, I just call it my, 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 uh, my uh, extrovertedness. Like my extrovertedness is done. I can't, I can't extrovert anymore. I can't do it. Like if I'm at a house party, if I'm out with friends, it's usually like nine to 10 o'clock, I'm done. I turn catatonic. I need to go sit down. I need to just shut the hell off. And I'm wondering if that's part of that for me. Like I just reached that overstimulation of like, ah, uh, no, we're done. We just got to, we got to remove ourselves from this. It could be. And so regulating it, what I would suggest, so a very easy way to regulate it and increase your vagal nerve tone and your heart rate variability is to lengthen your exhale. So we do this in very easy ways, like humming, singing, literally one to two ratio breath, meaning you count the inhale, let's say it's four seconds and your exhale is double the length. Okay. And just by doing that, you're creating better tone for your vagal nerve. Wow. In the moment. So if you find yourself and you personally, you know, mm -hmm. getting into like, okay, I'm kind of reaching my limit. And then you've got, you know, somebody, friends like, no, you're going to come meet so-and-so. <laughs> I mean, I would honestly suggest like sequestering yourself for like 10 minutes, go into the bathroom, shut the door and just like do 10 minutes, you know, five minutes of one to two ratio breath Yeah. for your nervous system. Wow. Deal. I'll definitely do that. I'm, I'm a big advocate of like, just, I need to step away and breathe for a second. You know, yeah. and having that, I, I, you know, I didn't know that that, that external, that longing, uh, elongating of that external breath was that toning. That's beautiful. Like I've had breath teachers like walk me through those breath patterns, but never really understood what that full longer exhale is. Thank you for clarifying that. That's beautiful. Yeah, you're welcome. I love, I love teaching this stuff. So yeah, that's actually also a huge part of why in yoga we chant mantra, because when you chant and you sing, you're elongating your, your exhale. Mm, yeah. I'm a big fan of my, of, uh, chanting. That's, uh, another thing that's probably in the past five to seven years has entered into my practice in my life. And that was, that was, it's, it's been fantastic chanting every day now, chanting for my clients, for my, you know, for, for sound baths. It's yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks for oh, giving I, me I some of those. I could go off on a tangent about that. Yeah. Oh, I, please do. I'm, hey, I'm here for you, girl. Japa mantra, man. I mean, that is lately in the last six months that, I mean, it's always been really powerful for me, but I'm only now 10 years into being a Kundalini teacher and something like 13 years.
practicing Kundalini? Mm -hmm. Am I starting to understand the science behind Japa and how powerful it is when you meditate on sacred sound current? Oftentimes it's, you know, a name of spirit, source, God, mm -hmm. um, but not always. Sometimes it's, you know, the translation of the mantra is something else about prosperity or, um, it can, I mean, it, there's literally mantras about anything. Yeah. It can be about self-love or whatever, but Japa mantra is the, is the, usually it's a Bij mantra. So Bij meaning seed. Okay. So it's usually a short mantra. Um, when you get more advanced, the, the mantras can get a little longer, but you're repeating that mantra over and over and over and over and over again. In Kundalini, we would say for a minimum of 11 minutes, but I'm finding that the sweet spot is really at 22 minutes mm. for myself. Okay. And that's because we're taught that at 22 minutes, not 20 minutes, but at 22 minutes, what happens is that you have an integration of the three minds, the negative mind, the positive mind, and the neutral mind. They start to blend together. Mm. They start to merge together. And so you can, I mean, I personally, I just get lost in that. And then, and then sometimes you find yourself even, you don't even need to chant the mantra. The, the, the mouth isn't moving anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's repeating in your mind. Uh, but you need the initial, initially you, you're consciously chanting and, and we need that because your tongue is making contact with different meridian points on the palate of your mouth. So we have over 80 different points on the palate of the mouth. And so there's some in the soft palate, but the majority of them are on the, like just above each of your teeth. Okay. So every Every tooth has four points, four meridian points. Oh. And when you chant specific mantra, that's what you're doing. That's why the pronunciation, you don't have to know it exactly right. You can mimic it if you're brand new and you're still going to get the effect. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to master it, you want to be specific with the pronunciation so that you are touching and, and flicking with your tongue and activating those specific meridian points that then light up certain aspects of your brain. Wow. And so when you chant for long enough, you get into that space of it's sort of liminal. It's sort of nothing, you know, and you merge, you can merge. Wow. I, uh, I, I, my morning meditation practice, I mentioned this earlier is my longer one. And, uh, I, when I first started, uh, chanting, I would chant every single day. Like I had a uh, 40 day mantras that I would do and typically, uh, you know, oddly enough, they typically would last about 20 minutes long. And that was saying them 108 times. And these are, you know, Lakshmi mantras or Chamundi Durga mantras, you know, a lot of Hindu mantras. Um, and I generally would find myself for about 20, 25 minutes, depending on the length of the mantra. Like if it's the Gayatri mantra, it's a freight train. I'm there for like 45 minutes, right? But, you know, most of these like shorter mantras, especially the seed mantras, had that average about 20-ish minutes or so. So that's really interesting that there's that 22-minute mark of, you know, in Kundalini, because I, I, I recognize that I feel that I never had something tangible to put it towards. But, you know, that that is such a beautiful thing. And, you know, that limit, not limiting, but changing the, the, the verbiage and going from an auditory 
chanting mantra to something that is just going on in my head over and over and over again. Like I would feel that. And that's one of my favorite things to do. And so again, like I'm not doing it on a daily basis now, but as you know, I've, I've integrated the mantras that I feel that I have been gifted to work with. I've done the 40 day mantras. Sometimes I do 90 day mantras. Um, and you know, as new ones start to come into my, my peripheral, then if I, you know, I feel them and I feel deeply about them that I'll sit with them for 40 days and have that part of my meditation, but it's not as ritualistic as it used to be. But, um, but yeah, there is that, that man, mantras are, are so beautiful. Thanks for sharing that mer- the meridian lines too. I, I actually had never heard that before. Yeah. So that's what, that's the science behind some of the science behind sound, mm. Or sound current. So japa is the vocal, you know, out loud recitation. But when you're chanting mentally, that is, it can be simran. It's a different japa is that out loud. Simran is more of the internal, okay. which is like, I've been also trained or not trained, but um, initiated into Vedic meditation or often called transcendental meditation, mm. um, where you're also repeating the mantra, but you're not focusing on the mantra, right? Right. You're just, it's repeating, but you're, you're favoring it over other thoughts, but you're not focusing on it. Right. And with, with TM too, that's, that's, that mantra is very specific to the practitioner, right? Yeah. It's given to you based on the age that you are when you initiate. Oh, okay. All right. And then what I understand is, so you're supposed to because uh, this is sort of a secondary, you know, thing that I was initiated into. It's a go-to for me, but if I'm honest, I don't do it like you're su- you're supposed to, right. which is 20, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon, or at least before your evening meal. Mm, okay. What it's supposed to be. And it's first thing in the morning before you have any food or drink. Um, and you can work with that mantra that was initially given to you for up to a year. And then after a year, if you do it religiously, like you're meant to twice a day for 20 minutes, then you can upgrade and you can get a longer mantra. Mm. Uh, but I've never done that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you have all these other things that you're working through, you're yeah. working with. You know? <laughs> I know I can kind of get caught in that too. Like I, I, uh, there's, there's times where I'm like, there's so many rituals that I'm doing. Like, am I, am I really fulfilling all of my, what I think I'm trying to get out of these rituals or am I just trying to pile on all the things? And that was one of the reasons why I kind of stepped away from mantras for a little while was that, you know, I started to listen to my body and, and feel internally that these mantras that I felt passionate about were seated within me. And so they're there for me to call forward if I need to, but to sit there and, you know, to dedicate that much time every single day to it, you know, I'm not a monk, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, mon- a monistic type person, right? I'm a householder, you know, what they call in the Vipassana lineage, you know, we're still householders. So we still have a responsibility for community right. and for family and for all this stuff. So, you know, I, had to pick and choose where I could put my time. And when I, like I said, when I find mantras that sit with me, I'll, I'll sit with them. But outside of that, I'm really, you know, listening to my breath and I'm doing my meditations in different ways to uh, satisfy what I think I need to get done for that day. Yeah. And I found myself in the last couple of years needing to not be so rigid in my practice, mm. you know, and allowing myself because of health issues or, you know, what have you, like for whatever reason, um, just allowing myself the space to be a little bit more playful, a little bit more, 
um, explorative. Like, yeah. is that a word? <laughs> it is now. It is now. You know, and I feel that I, you know, I use the Insight Timer app for my phone for meditation. Yeah, right? Me I too. love it. It's great. I mean, it's got meditations. It's got timers. It's got all like ocean sounds. I can listen to whales. All this fun stuff. But what I found is early on in my meditation practice, I was so dedicated to that length of days meditated that I would just, I wouldn't, I, I found myself not meditating to meditate, but I was meditating to keep that number going. I got to like 450 and I'm like, Ooh, that's a good number. Let's keep that number going. And I remember one day, uh, I was vacationing somewhere. I think we were in France or something and we just, you know, I didn't have time to wake up and meditate like I normally do. It was something that it was in the top of my mind. When I get some time, I'm going to sit down and meditate, turn on my timer, do all that shit. And I realized by the end of the day, when it turned over to midnight, we were still up. I hadn't meditated. And there was a ping of like, oh my God, I just lost all that time. But yeah. did I lose the time or is it just a goddamn app that's keeping track of my, my minutes, right? You know, like there's no time lost. If anything, I was kind of proud of myself a couple of weeks later for taking that time to not meditate because I, would have, I wouldn't have been present for the entire group. I wouldn't have been present for Monica, my girlfriend. I wouldn't have been present for all the beautiful things that happened, all the castles we saw, all the adventures we had because I needed to, to, to satisfy my, my app. Right. right. And I mean, that's really what our practice is teaching us is to be present. Yes. Exactly. And so that's what I mean about the rigidity. Mm. Um, like I mentioned that I just recently started, you know, rereading autobiography of a yogi. And I was thinking I was kind of ruminating on my spiritual name, which is Hans Preet Kar, which means the priestess who loves to love God. Mm, okay. And I was like, how much of my practice, am I actually meditating on God? And, and, and I was like, I actually, I, I really gravitate towards my physical practice uh, because it makes me feel better in my physical body. Mm. Um, but how often am I actually like just joyously rejoicing, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and rereading his book has brought me back to that a little bit. And recognizing that, yeah, maybe chanting mantra for 30 minutes and doing less of the physical practice will bring me even more joy than I, you know, anticipated. Mm. Um, or maybe going for a walk and, you know, having an interaction with, you know, the toucans and the foxes and the things that are in my neighborhood would actually bring me more joy and help me feel more present. Mm -hmm. No, I do. I do. There's a, there's a quote from, uh, I love following this guy, Aubrey Marcus. He's got a great podcast and, yeah. uh, he's got a quote that he always says is you can tell the spiritual master by the sound of their laughter, you know, and mm -hmm. that's, that, that hits so much home to me. And, and, you know, when I look at like the Dalai Lama, for example, you know, one of uh, mother Teresa, you know, there's this childlike wonder that they had, you know, Dalai Lama still has, you know, when they, when they greet people, it's them and them, that's it. You know, there's nobody else around. There's like, there's joy, there's laughter. There's, there's this like intimacy that they create within every single encounter that they have. And that just reminds me that, you know, I don't have to be the stoic human being. I don't have to, you know, never show my emotions, never show my negative side because now I'm working towards this positivity. You know, like Ram Dass says, you're a goddamn human, learn the curriculum. You know, you're here on this planet for a reason. You know, you're a human in a human form. Humans are kind of weird and messed up and we got a lot of emotions we're dealing with, a lot of stories we filter through. So live that because the best way to help humanity is to be a human. Yeah. Right. Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. And also I want to 
say that yoga is not a religion. So if anyone's out there listening, um, it's not a religion, it's a philosophy. However, it, you know, a lot of religions have adopted yoga into their practices. But if there's somebody out there who, you know, isn't sure or isn't, you know, identifies as being atheist, there's still, there's still room in yoga to just be aware yes. and, and to be present and to be grateful, you know, and practicing loving kindness. And, mm-hmm. you know, those are just humanistic practices. You right. Know? That was the thing, one of the things that drew me to yoga, because I was, uh, you know, when I started my my path, I was a staunch atheist, you know, I didn't want to have to think about a higher power, let alone, you know, give any kind of, uh, you know, acknowledgement to it. But, you know, my girlfriend at the time was like, yoga, yoga, yoga. And I actually did think it was part of religion, too, you know, all this stuff. I didn't realize at the time there was a difference between spirituality and religion. Thought it was all the same thing, you know. And so when she finally convinced me that it wasn't, I started going to yoga, listening to my breath. I went in for very vain reasons in my own right. I was out of shape and then my back sucked and all this shit. So I wanted to look better, feel better. And then all of a sudden, through that breath work and through that movement, there is this sneaky little light that started to shine in. And I'm like, what the hell is this crap? Like, no, I don't want to deal with this. No. But, you know, the yoga was working and it it proved to work. It made me a happier human being. I was better at work. I was better with my family. I was all the things that I needed to to improve on. But then there was this like this layer of spirituality that that was there if I wanted it to be there. But to the the, the credit of all the teachers that 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 uh, helped me through my path, it was never force fed to me. It was never forced down my throat like, hey, spirituality, listen to the light, listen to your source, blah, 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 all this stuff. It was after we're done with our yoga class, we're all cracked open, taking a 110 degree class. And then all of a sudden, you know, my teacher's like, hey, what do you think about meditation? I'm like, oh, well, I never really thought about it before. Now I have a clear mind. I'm not living my story. I'm open to hearing this information. And 10 years later, I'm meditating every day, you know? And so it's like this, this sneaky kind of way that when we put ourselves in the position to receive some type of knowledge in a beautiful way, that knowledge is going to hit us the way it needs to hit us. Yeah, and I one one of the sayings that I love the most is you take what resonates and leave behind what doesn't. If you're mm-hmm. ever in a, and that goes for any situation in life. Yeah, if something Definitely. resonates, move into it, lean into it, and if it doesn't, just let go. Mm-hmm. So with uh with all of what you're what we talked about, is this the 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 um, idea of the offerings that you have for for your uh, for your uh, business, Swan Love? Yeah, so I teach if you if anybody wants to come down and and you know visit me in Tulum, Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> um, I teach at several of the hotels here and during high season when everyone, you know, when we get bombarded with lots of tourists, uh, I teach a lot of privates. I guest teach at um, lots of different trainings. Um, so I'm like guest teaching at a breathwork training next week. Um, I just finished, um, or I'm I'm about to launch in the fall, my very first course, Mm. which is called the Empowered Teacher. Um, It's it's for a niche market. It's for recent community teacher, level level one teacher training graduates, um, because Kundalini training is a little, it's a lot more of like psychic surgery on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) It's like 90% that so that you can get your, your psyche literally to a place where you can hold space for other people. And then it's about 10% teaching you how to actually 
teach other people. <laughs> right, right. And so you get out of there like completely reborn and you're sort of like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, you're, and you're super passionate about it because you've absolutely had a breakthrough like me. You know, mm-hmm. I suffered from depression for 15 years and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm free of it. I'm liberated of it. And you're like, holy shit, this stuff works. I want to tell everybody. And then you're like, wait, how do I teach this? Right. Um, and so because I'm a Capricorn, uh, <laughs> in my work life, uh, I'm just, I'm very strategic and I'm organized. And basically I looked for systems, organizational systems and uh, things to take all of those 9,000 Kriyas and 9,000 meditations that are out there for you as a teacher to select and share with your students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I created a platform that would, yeah, organize it and simplify it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's launching in the fall. And then I work with people. A lot of what I do is uh, I meet people in my classes who are coming down here to Tulum on vacation and then they live somewhere else, but they want to work together. Hmm. And so 90% of my therapy work is virtual. Hmm. Okay. Um, If somebody does live here in Tulum or is living in Tulum, then I I work with them in person, but it's, it's, that's one thing that um, the pandemic did give us is a breakdown of us thinking that we had to be in person in order for things to get done. Right. Uh, so virtual office and, and virtual therapy. I, I find people are even maybe having bigger breakthroughs because they're in the comfort of their own home. Yeah. That's you know, they're in their own environment. Mm-hmm. They're sitting on their couch or laying in their, you know, sitting up in their bed talking to me and they feel safe. Yeah. You know? Wow, that's a layer I've never even put together. Uh, I've yeah. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, very nice. I really like it. Um, <laughs> and what else am I doing? Yeah, I'm open to collaborating. I'm looking for residencies. Might be relocating from Tulum in the next, you know, year or so. Okay. So, yeah. Right on. I yeah. uh, I uh, so you you said the uh, the operating procedures. That's that's like. SOPs, all that stuff. That's all my past life. Love that shit, right? And for so long, I uh, I, I tried to separate myself, and I called him corporate Adam. I call my ego corporate Adam. I was taught by a by a therapist friend that if you can name your ego, it's a lot easier to like tell your ego to stop, right? So like stop flaring or go sit in the freaking corner or whatever it is, right? Because we need our ego, we just don't need it to be in charge all the time, right? So my ego's exactly right. They kick it back there for a little bit, let consciousness take over. So I named mine corporate Adam, and so there's double entendres for all that. But corporate Adam, uh, you know, the, the benefits of corporate Adam that I find now is that, uh, and you kind of touched on a little bit with your SOPs is that, you know, we're in a, we're, we're entering into a world that, um, has been, um, considered woo woo for a very long time has been dis, dis, uh, discounted for a very long time. And now there's accreditations coming towards it. There's scientific backing that can put some understanding to a lot of this woo woo stuff, right? We've all known, but you know, whatever time catches up when it catches up. But with that, there's been a lot of people in this industry, uh, the, the growing of this industry that have had a lot of really good ideas, but because they've been quote unquote woo woo for their entire life, they don't have the structures to set up a corporation or to set up a business and the SOPs and things like that, that, you know, somebody like myself, who spent 20 years in restaurants 
everything is an SOP. Everything has a freaking clipboard. Everything has a structure. Everything has a, has a place, right? And so when you can start taking people like yourself that have this extensive music background and, and executives and all this understanding of how to work with people, how to build systems, how to understand industries, now we're, we're taking that previous knowledge that we had in our previous lives and transitioning into now this more metaphysical world. You know, not that everything needs structure, not that everything needs to have like an understanding, but now there's a lot more structure coming to this world, which validifies it to the people that it needs to be validified to, right? You know, there's people that are just like, I'll take it, right? I'm a, I must, I love being, um, uh, you know, I, I love having questions. I love not just f- diving fully into the understanding. You know, I'll definitely be a skeptic, but not a, not a not a dismissive skeptic. I just I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page, right? But having that understanding and having moving forward now with a lot of this. Um, this, uh, you know, structure that's put together, I think it, again, it, it'll validify it a lot to a lot of people and make it more approachable to people. Yes. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Like that's drawing on again, that's a, those actualization moments. We're drawing on all the information that we've gathered throughout our life. You know, maybe something that you're not wanting to go back into with executives and stuff like that, but there's still a lot that that industry taught you. And for you to be able to parlay that now into this industry and to make this structured in some kind of way, I think that's, that's, those are steps that are very important for us to take that is kind of boring for a lot of people, but the people that are passionate about it, it's like, Hey, sign me up, give me a clipboard and some paper. I'm going to fucking write some systems, man. We'll get this thing going. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we have to bring, if we, the more, what I'm recognizing is if we want to reach more people, we have to do this. Hmm. No, Uh, we have to create some sorts of systems and things in order to, you know, reach the masses. Right. And that's what we're doing. And for me, the whole reason why I created this course for recent graduates too, is because not everybody who graduates from level one teacher training wants to go be a yoga teacher full time. Right. You know, you don't, because I found myself spending, if I was going to teach a 90 minute class, I would find myself preparing for the class for three hours. Yep. And then I go and teach it. That's five and a half hours. I didn't have that extra time <laughs> when I was working as, you know, at a record label, going to school for yoga therapy, teaching you like, I didn't have that extra time. That was not realistic. Right. And so for those, especially for those people who want to do it in their extra time, you know, they, it, we have to streamline it. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you for making that opportunity for people, you know, because that's, you know, giving them, uh, making this palatable, you know, giving people the, the approachability of this instead of this is like, oh, I'll never have time to, you know, like your, you're like your uh, Kundalini training, you know, having that eight months instead of having a flash two weeks where a lot of people can't take two weeks off of work and then dedicate right. all of that time to, to learning yoga, you know, so that, you know, making it, making it palatable, making it approachable. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm indebted to my teachers to recognizing that we needed a structure like that. Um, and also the integration, like, I don't know how I would have done, like, like you said, I couldn't have taken that amount of time off or it would have eaten into my entire vacation and then I wouldn't have had any vacation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. For the year. Uh, so yeah. 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 Well, uh, Heather, I'm, uh, I'm so just filled by our conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for your knowledge and for your ability to share this knowledge. You know, a lot of times when, uh, you know, we have this knowledge, sometimes it, it seems so 
unapproachable to people because there's like this depth and, but you've made it so approachable. You've made it very palatable. And, and it's something that, I mean, I've taken a, just a cadre of notes over here of things to, to circle back on and to look up after we're done here and all this fun stuff. So, um, I'm deeply grateful for your time and for your, all of your energy and for what you're doing. And thank you for bringing a light into Tulum and for offering what you offer. And if there's ever anything that, that I can do to help you on your journey, uh, please let me know. I'm happy to happy to be there for you. Thank you. I super appreciate it. And um, I want to also invite you. I uh, will be relaunching online classes mm. in the fall, which I was doing during COVID, uh, during the pan like with full lockdown. And I'm going to go back to it. So I'm going to invite you once I have those up and running again. I'm. I'd love to have you join our international online sangit. <laughs> please. <laughs> and, and so that you can, you know, embrace Kundalini a little more. I would love to. Please, yeah. When you have those dates, please send me some invites. I would love to be there and to to learn from you and to also support you. I love what you're doing. Thanks, and I appreciate you for everything you do and for being uh, a light in the world. So thank oh, you. Thank you so much, love. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for spending time with Heather and I. Uh, check out the show notes for any links or information about how to get in touch with us. Please like or subscribe to the podcast. Thank you so much. Obeisance and love. We'll see you next time.